The Kalahari Desert is a vast stretch of sand in the middle of southern Africa that straddles the borders of three countries, Botswana, Namibia, and South Africa. Although it is a desolate place, the desert provides a refuge against the many forces that have pushed the San or Bushman people to the edge of extinction. There are about 90,000 Bushmen living in the Kalahari. They are the direct descendants of the world's earliest tool-making humans. The historian Noel Mostert says, We may never know precisely how far back the tenure of the Bushmen goes in terms of Homo sapiens, but whatever it is, he has no rival. Most Bushmen survivors live in Botswana and Namibia. In South Africa, there are only about 300 of them left. Most of these people, the last of the earliest people to populate the country's shores and hinterland, live in a far corner of the Kalahari, near South Africa's remote border with Namibia. I first met Elsie Falboy in a town called Ritfontein, a place where the wind rustles across dunes of ochre sand and empty salt pans that have been bleached white by the sun. To encounter this old woman, her body wrapped in a black cloak, and bent double by ninety-six forbidding years in the desert, is to be both humbled and haunted. She is the last speaker of a complex and beautiful language called Tawni. Elsie Falboy's frail body is quite literally the courier for a culture that is amongst the oldest in the world. Both of them, her body and the heritage that is inscribed in her language, are on the verge of death. This is her story, as told to me in snatches of her own ancient Bushman tongue and in Afrikaans, the only language that her sons and daughters now speak. This is Elsie Falboye. This is Tauni that I speak. I cannot be denied of my language of my people. I was born with it, and I will end with it. Until recently, it was believed that Tani had in fact died. Tony Trail is a professor of linguistics and has dedicated most of his life to studying the Bushman languages of the Kalahari. By the 1970s, he and his colleagues wrote that all South Africa's Bushman languages, including Tawni, were effectively dead. So when he first heard of Elsie Falboy's existence, it was with great excitement that he packed some archive recordings of Bushman languages, recordings made on vinyl LPs by academics in the 1930s, and drove more than 1,800 kilometers from Johannesburg into the desert so that he could play them to her. My initial goal in playing those archival recordings to Elsie was 
to see whether she could in fact understand one of the languages that was extinct. She listened intently to these voices from the past and it literally sparked off some sort of, I don't know, awakening in her because she would say, when the recording stopped, she would say, just listen to how beautifully and how well that old man speaks this language. Tony Trail first heard about Elsie Falboy from Nigel Crawhall. He is a language activist and a man on a mission to save the dying languages of the Kalahari. And in the process, he wants to help improve the living conditions of the people who speak them. Nigel Crawhall first encountered Elsie Falboy during a recent research expedition and realized that she was able to speak this language that was thought to be long dead. Her language was built from all these experiences about technology and hunting and gathering and all and these things, but also about love and relationships and anger and, and all these human relations that built this language. And then she's carrying this around in her body and she's the last person. I mean, it's quite overwhelming. Now, Elsie is effectively the last speaker of Aoni which is the subgroup of languages spoken in the Kalahari. When Elsie dies, the, the light will go out on that whole South African San linguistic tradition. So it marks quite an important point in South Africa's history, that the original people of South Africa, their language, their information, their technologies, their identity, has been brought right down to this last family and this last speaker. It's quite an incredible experience to meet somebody who is a pinpoint in history. The history of Elsie Falboy's family forms part of a global pattern. Old and venerable languages around the world are dying as fast as the rainforests and other ecosystems where the indigenous speakers live. Bushman languages like Tawni contain an encyclopedic store of information about ecology, geography, tradition and culture that is likely to be wiped out and lost to future generations. How does it happen that languages which were once so vibrant can die? Clues about the cause of this fate are contained in Elsie Falboy's story of her life. I am now an old woman, and in the time that I've lived and worked, I did not have happy days. I had a hard life. I was born on a farm called Grontnes. Here I stayed until I was strong and could think for myself. My mother told me this. Then we trekked. We left. A bushman treks around quite a lot. We are a roving people. Then we came to live in a place called uh, Zutpats. We left there. Then came the war. Me and my father and my brothers and my one older brother were with us. Yeah, in Chutpats. When they saw the cannons approaching. I didn't know what the cannons looked like. I was playing with my brother. Yeah, yeah, in, in Chutpats. When a horse with a soldier on its back approached. He had a folded hat. The German... He asked my brother, uh, I'm just guessing, where are the English? 
And now my brother said, The Obas, the old master, lives just behind us. The words were barely out of my brother's mouth when the German galloped away. When I looked again, the horse was gone. We were still playing when my mother called us. She said to us, Hey, you see this thing, this is war, and when your father comes back we must flee. The sheep were gathered, the goats were milked, coffee, tea was made, food was made, everything was packed. We had to go a long way. When everything was ready, we had to flee. The bulls were quiet. The place was quiet. Not, not very quiet, just dark. We ran from so, this Sautpats to Grontnius. We traveled all night. It's a long way. When the sun lifted its head and first light appeared, there was the blue dunes. They call it Diamond Spits. And from there we came to the Kalari. My parents had lived in the Kalari before, so they came back to live here for a while. It is here where I saw how my mother makes the summer porridge. Summer is a kind of a melon, how she stamps the seeds. Here I saw everything my mother does by the fire. With summer, you can make porridge, or you can roast it, and you can eat it, but not raw. If we wanted other food, we went into the felt and dug for angels, for those little things. In Bushman language, it is called tku, and it looks like onions, just smaller. That is how we used to eat. That was our food. I spoke all the words that I speak today with my mother. If she said, Nyangka, then I had to take the pot. Kwangi, then I had to make fire for her. Sinya, come here. So, that's how I learned the language from my mother. Elsie Falboy's mother is long since dead. Her children speak only Afrikaans, so she is left alone with a language in her head that she can speak to no one. Tony Trail played Elsie Falboy an archive recording of a man talking about an initiation ritual. This was an important ceremony in the life of young Bushman children, marking the passage from childhood to adolescence. In that place the Bushman did not live as we live today, with this one's house here and that one's house there. As I said, they were a roving people. But when a girl comes of age, then she has to sit in a special hut. Some girls sit for two weeks, some for one week. I said just for one week. They give you a tortoise shell with nicely ground buhu and other herbs, and you wear beads around your neck, and you wear flowers. You have a nice dress on, and you smear your legs red. And sometimes, if you are barefoot, it did not matter. It was not important. I was still sitting comfortable when my aunt came in the house and asked, Where's Elsie? Where's Elsie? Then the men come, and they took me out. I was among the flowers when the men, the people, crowded me. They started doing the step dance, and then the men come and chanted. Come on, 
Pietrus Falboy, the eldest son of Elsie Falboy, does not know his mother's language. For all his life, he has spoken only Afrikaans. If I think and speak about my childhood, it's a heartbreaking story that I have to tell. My mother and aunt told me what a great life and important role we the Bushmen played in South Africa. Our forefathers could move from Namibia to Botswana and in the whole of the Mir area. They had the freedom to slaughter animals. It's a heartbreaking story when I think about when the laws were made. The Kalahari Game Park was made. The boundaries were made. How the San people were restricted. We couldn't move around anymore. A group of people from the Mir district moved in the park. But when the laws were made, they were cut off by borders and were driven from the park. When they moved out of the park to the opposite side, the white farmers were on that side, and the sun people worked there for a starvation wage just to survive. The others who weren't killed and exterminated had to flee to where their ancestors used to stay for shelter. If they arrived there, if they didn't get arrested, they got beaten and abused. Or they had to turn back, and for them to be able to survive... They had to work on the farms for that starvation wage. In 1958, my father died, and we were left alone. We trekked from White Farm to Buster Farm. And if my mother couldn't find work, we had to move on. We tried to read and write in the schools. Only Afrikaans and English was spoken in these schools. My mother had to leave us and work in a boarding school a hundred kilometers away, where she collected the breadcrumbs that fell from the table, tried it, and packed it, and then sent it to us. My wage was a shilling. Shilling? Who has ever worked for a shilling a month? Elsie did. Shilling, then two shillings, then four shillings, man. Not every month. After every few months, they'll pay me more. And that is also one reason why I lost my language, because my aunt, where I stayed most of the time, could not help me with the language. Because my uncle only spoke Afrikaans. When I went to school, I only spoke Afrikaans because everyone spoke it. And my mother, who was working at the boarding school, could not help us with the language. This is how I was deprived of the language of my mother, the language of my father. I cannot speak it. The fact that there's no transmission to children. I mean, that is a critical problem for language survival. Once you see that situation... Uh, developing, what you find is a lot of adult people who are still fluent in the language, but the language has had its death sentence. Languages don't kill themselves. They're always killed by external sources. They're, it's the environment around them. People kill languages. They don't kill themselves. Even some white people spoke the Nama and Bushman languages, and they were not insulting about it. But at the place where you worked, if you were a group of Bushmen working together, they felt uncomfortable when you tried to speak your language. It was always an issue for them that the Bushmen were busy plotting and gossiping, that they were busy planning something secret, or that you were making plans to steal. They didn't like it. In his book In Search of the San, author and photographer Paul Weinberg 
says that Bushmen in colonial times were exterminated by both black and white settlers, who often regarded them as little more than vermin. At best they were exploited as slave labor, and in the process the Bushman population as a whole was decimated and entire groups wiped out. All that remains of the Bushman's earlier presence are rock paintings stretching from the Cape to Zimbabwe and Elsie Falboy's small group of survivors. Linked to the history of genocide was a deliberate campaign by colonial authorities to prevent their conquered subjects from speaking Bushman languages on the grounds that these were bizarre and barbaric, outward signs of being primitive. When it comes to labeling them as primitive, that's wholly without any validity at all. If one looks at consonants and uses that as the measure of comparison, and one takes a specific Khoisan language, let's take the one that I've been working with, Khon, then Khon has got about 117 consonants, and English has got about 23. When it comes to vowels, English, like a lot of Germanic languages, quite a complicated language. It's got about 18 to 20 to 21 distinct vowels, and Khon has got about 47 so if one just looks at numbers of consonants and numbers of vowels, then you can see that there's an enormous difference in phonetic complexity. This is not to say that other languages are not complicated. It's just to say that the kinds of complexities you find in the Khoisan languages are somewhat unique. Generally, languages die because communities are put in a position where their traditional resources, cultural resources, are no longer valued, and other resources are valued, such as the situation in South Africa where if you speak Afrikaans, you can get a job. So, And there are no jobs if you speak your language. So it's about being forced into a tighter and tighter economic circle. That will cause language death. So when we talk about language death, we literally mean a slow process of shifting from one language to another. And at some point, the shift has become complete. I think the critical issue in language death is there's a certain point where mothers say, it will hold my child back to continue having our identity and our knowledge. Before I thought of getting married, my one wish was to become a soldier, to fight for South Africa, to stand up for my country. The morning when I heard that I could not qualify to become a soldier because I said that my ancestors, my father, is a Hottentot and my mother a Bushman, it was a sad day for me. When they asked me where my identity card is, I told them, there is this card that I was given, and those people say, I'm a colored. I told them that I'm not a colored, that I'm a Bushman descendant. I cannot be colored. They told me I can never be part of the army. They tore up my papers and showed me the door. They, they said I was being too clever. That hurt me a lot. But what could I do? We did not have any plans. Against the government, we were powerless. Against the laws, we were powerless. You paid your taxes, but you did not have any rights. People who have longer hair than you have more rights than you. If you have short hair, you get classed on the color of your skin. If you go to the police station, it was the same. If you go to the school, you got the same treatment. My uncle was in church one day, sitting on the bench, and a child with long hair came in. He had to give up his seat for that child. I was in the church, and I saw this happen. 
the Dutch Reformed Church played a very important role in suppressing identity and promoting an, a coloured Afrikaans identity. There was no such category as Khoi and San. They were not allowed to have that identity. So you can imagine, for 40 years under apartheid, it was basically a, a secret that you had to keep at home. Apartheid has ended, and its store of secrets is being prized open. Now many South Africans, including minority groups like the Bushmen, are looking in new ways at their past and their heritage. Under these new conditions, can Elsie Falboy's language be saved? One could point to languages that have been brought back from the edge of extinction. Hebrew, for example. Welsh has spread a lot. But in the case of Aoni, it seems to me that it might just be too late to develop any kind of meaningful attitudes amongst our peoples towards these languages. There is an integral link between the language and access to the land. Without that access, all of that knowledge becomes useless and the children will not want to learn it. Now almost all the Koinsan communities have been kicked off the land. That's the crisis point. The key to their survival is access to land. The South African government has adopted an ambitious program to restore and redistribute land to its indigenous people. The Bushmen too have lodged a claim for land for parts of the Kalahari. But this land is now occupied by farmers and some of it is a game park. The farmers and some conservationists are opposing the land claim and some of them say the claimants are half-castes without any right to call themselves Bushmen. I am now finished. I am sick. But I still want to tell them. I don't have any evidence, but I always heard from my parents, my mother and my father. It's years and years that the Bushmen lived off the land. Thousands of years they soaked in the Kalari. Now they want to deny this. They must not tell me I am not a Bushman. I am a Bushman. It's just that I haven't danced a trade dance. But I heard them with my little ears. Although there are vested interests ranged against the Bushmen's struggle to regain some of their ancestral lands, they do have a powerful ally in Derek Heinekom, the land minister in Nelson Mandela's government and architect of South Africa's land reform program. I, I too am one of those, by the way, who firmly believes that they do have a, a rightful claim to lodge. They really did roam in that area and they did conduct their traditional way of life in that area and they've lost their access to such resources. Now, part of the resolution could be a formula where they are given the right to do some hunting, given the right to do some um, collection, some harvesting of traditional foods, uh, traditional medicines, and, and, of course, that they get some benefits out of the tourism revenue. The, the San communities have a, a rich tradition. They have something which is of interest to people all over the world. They have skills. And they indeed could be used as um, trackers, they could be used as tourist guides, and they could also be part of a, a much uh, richer packaging of the Kalahari Chemsport Park. So we, we believe that it could be a win-win situation. 
The Bushmen may well win some of their claim to land. They have survived many crises during centuries of existence in the Kalahari. But unless something is done urgently, it is likely that the younger generations will lose their ecological science and folklore. For them, time is running out. This eldest son of mine, one day I took him into the felt when he was about 19 or 20 years old. He couldn't recognize the tracks of animals. He couldn't even recognize the tracks of a mouse. When you come to the tracks of a cat, you must know what sort of cat walked here. But he didn't know this. Now this shows you how we've been cut off. These things I learned as a child. His children, if they don't learn that, a lot of opportunities are closed to them. The bush law of the communities is very intense. I mean, their knowledge of the Kalahari is encyclopedic. The resources are there, but they're not managed in any sense. The communities have been so oppressed by the conditions they live under that the resources are scattering. I think the alternative is to head deeper into the problems they experience, alcohol abuse, generation gaps, violence, and a sense of worthlessness. I am pleading, please, Elsie Farboy asks for peace. When we got the Kalari, we got it clean. We did not buy it. God gave it to us. He did not loan the Kalari to us. He gave it to us for ownership. When I talk like this, I'm not speaking in anger. Because I'm not angry. But I just want the freedom that we once had. In our hearts, we long for some light, some sunshine in our lives, so that we can be free. The traditions must return. Our people must have the freedom in a free country to do the gay dance. And the song they sing is a prayer to call God when it is very dry on earth. Will anyone hear Pietrus's prayer? When I asked Elsie Falboy to say something in her own language, she chose to send a message to those in power. It is an eloquent plea for the rights of her people, a plea from a dignified woman whose last wish is for her family to be reunited with their past. The tragedy is that this might well be the last time we hear her frail voice, the last voice of an ancient tongue. <laughs>